This is another MP3 podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle, Australia. And welcome to Pet Chat. And today, our pet vet, Dr. David Tabret, is with us. Very good. Oh, afternoon. I was going to say good morning. A very good the afternoon. The clock's ticked to you over. Too. It has. It's Pet Chat. It's Pet Chat. Yep. And the time, oh, the time, the topic, the special topic for today. Well, I thought we might discuss about household hazards for your pet. And uh, we weren't going to talk about just dogs. We'll talk about cats and also birds because they're particularly susceptible to uh, some of the household hazards around. Mm. So we're moving into the household. Mm. Next in Pet Chat on 2NURFM. It's Pet Chat and Dr. David Tabret. Tabret, we're talking about household hazards today. Yes, look at our pets, the poor things. We put them in a household and we're probably smart enough, or hopefully a lot of the time, to avoid the things in our house that might be a little bit dangerous, you know, that we take care with and we make sure they're locked up and out of reach. But for our pets, sometimes uh, they inadvertently or uh, by sometimes by our, by our own hands can be exposed to some of these things. So what are the things we tend to think of? Well, oftentimes uh, we might think we're doing our, our dogs, for instance, a bit of a favour by cooking something up for them and feeding it to them, and that's great, except some of our common foods that we use are actually toxic. Now, We've talked about chocolate before, so... You mean toxic to... Toxic to the dog. To the dog, mm. not to us. Well, I think if you ate enough chocolate, it would be toxic. It probably could. Well, that applies to most things, That's I right, yes. The poison is the dose. So um, chocolate is much more... Uh, dogs are much more sensitive to the uh, effects of chocolate, and we've talked about that. Grapes also are another thing that... Um, we're not quite sure of the mechanism there or how much and so on, but certainly... Grapes, whether it's uh, fresh grapes or even sultanas and ra um, raisins, sometimes are going to be um, uh, at risk of uh, toxicity. Um, then we think about things like onion and some of the onion derivatives. So spring onions and uh, we even see problems with garlic. But uh, what happens with onions is that it actually ingested, there's an oxidative substance which damages red blood cells. And I've personally seen, I th can think of at least two or three animals you know, over a long period of time have had uh, what's called a hemolytic anemia where the red blood cells are broken down and they're basically on the verge of needing a blood transfusion simply because they ate onions. And the classic one is, of course, is at the barbecue and the tray of, uh, you know, maybe a sausage or two and the pile of onions left over, put it down for the dog, saves on the washing up. And um, <laughs> the poor, two the days later, uh, mm. yeah, your dog's... Uh, Really crook. So that's an important one. So would it be different, raw onion or cooked onion? No, no, no. They're both uh, they're both toxic. And as I said, even um, garlic is uh, has been shown to actually cause damage as well. And that's a concern because a lot of people, for instance, might come in. And I've seen, and they say, "Oh, for flea control, I give the animal garlic." Uh, there's no proof that that works. And as I said, there is actually a risk associated with it. So I'd be very cautious about what it is that you might um, expose your pet to in that way. Macadamia nuts are uh, uh, toxic as well. They damage the nervous system. Avocados uh, can cause um, uh, liver problems as well and neurological disease. We do see a whole range of other sort of food stuffs that um, we might think are safe but are definitely dangerous. And then I was thinking about what about um, plants and so on in our house, um, so lilies are the most common uh, or the thing that springs to mind as the most toxic and especially to cats. And we've seen an increasing risk of 
I don't know whether it's people being more attentive about, you know, they watch their house um, renovator shows and things like that where their houses are all done up and they think, you know what, would really spruce this place up. Let's go get some nice pot plants, put them in. Great idea, looks great, but just be very careful because some of those things, again, are toxic. Lilies, there are some differences between the types of lilies, but generally most lilies are going to be toxic to your cat. All parts of the lily are toxic, um, and the difficulty with uh, lily toxicity is that it causes uh, very often an irreversible kidney failure, and um, they can die from it, so it's quite tragic when it happens. So not toxic <clears throat> to the touch, but toxic no, they'll, for eating. No, Yeah, very often. You know, they're up on a windowsill, and the cat loves to sit up there and next thing you go in and half the flower or the leaf or whatever is eaten. So be very, very careful with if you've got cats, don't have lilies around. Um, the other areas are, that I think we need to be careful is um, either pets get access to or we inadvertently give them some medication. And we had a, uh, a dog in recently that had a sore shoulder and the owners had given some aspirin, which um, can be safe uh, in the right dose. Um, but there was a miscalculation in the amount that was given, and so the dog actually, it was a very young dog, ended up receiving an overdose. Not a great overdose, but uh, certainly for a young dog it's a dangerous level. An overdose of, to- of aspirin, which um, has the potential to cause kidney damage and gastrointestinal damage, and they can ulcerate their stomach. Um, luckily, we all went well and uh, passed through after... Um, we, we uh, survived the experience after a couple of days, though, a little bit concerned. We've still got to wait for another blood test, so it's a bit of a bit of a worry. The other one is paracetamol. Is uh, Aspirin is toxic to cats more, more than dogs uh, because cats lack the ability to actually metabolise a lot of substances. So they have uh, processes in the liver that detoxify agents, and cats don't have the same processes that dogs do, for instance. And so some of the things that... Uh, can be marginally safe or mildly toxic in dogs are actually going to be much more toxic in cats and aspirin's one of those paracetamol even more so and paracetamol is quite dangerous to cats so we you know sometimes we think well he's limping a bit i better give him a panadol and that could be a very dangerous decision so be very careful about those sort of things so medicines yeah medicines and uh, that's (laughs) foods plants uh, household chemicals, I think we would probably recognise that, you know, if it's, it needs to be kept locked up for us, it needs to be kept locked up for your pets. But just remember, if you've cleaned the floor with something, for instance, or you've used a cleaning substance, if your pet manages to walk across it and then licks their feet afterwards, that could be quite dangerous. Um, I've seen people uh, unwittingly, I guess, uh, I remember a fellow once who want, had a really bad flea problem in his dog, so he, an old wives' remedy poured kerosene on the dog to actually kill the fleas well it did but it also caused burns to the dog a chemical burn all the way down and when we clipped the coat because it was a long coated dog i remember seeing the the red drip marks running down either side where it had actually run down and burnt the dog's skin and it ended up um, it was okay but uh, lost some skin in the process the other very important one though is if you i said we'd mention birds because a lot of household birds and a lot of people have got birds and they're very much part of the family. But um, because of the unique nature of birds with their respiratory system, a lot of things that are mildly irritating to our airways and to our dog and cat can be deadly to our birds because they actually, uh, when they breathe in, the, 
the air goes through the lung and then it goes into the air sacs, into the abdominal air sacs, and then goes back through the lung. So the body actually gets two goes at the substances. Um, things like cigarette smoke can be very dangerous, and uh, we see that um, nicotine poisoning in birds quite a bit. But also, and this is one you may not know, that uh, if you have a bird in the kitchen and you start to cook something up, for instance, and use a non-stick pan, that the Teflon, when it's heated, releases a chemical that's irritating to birds and can cause respiratory problems as well. So just be very careful around birds. We do see birds that uh, like to sit on their owner's shoulder in the kitchen and you're cooking, and then they decide to go and land in the pot of water or the oil or something have seen that more than one occasion and uh, obviously very um, upsetting when it happens. For both. For everyone. and mm. pet. So household hazards. It's I a know. dangerous place to be. It's, it's a minefield, <laughs> right. isn't it? But a bit of common sense probably goes a long way. You're listening to Pet Chat and Dr. David Tabret today. And Danny Boss not with us today, David. He's not well. I know, he's crook. I'm going to pop round after the show and see if I can fix him. and Cheer him up. Give him yeah, an injection him or something and... <laughs> Help him. So hope you're feeling better very soon, Danny. And uh, we are looking forward to your calls. If you've got a question you'd like to put to David today, 49216216 will get your question through to us. Roberta Flack and Danny Hathaway together. Where is the love on 2NURFM? And, of course, Pet Chat is all about love and our love for our pets. Dr. David Tabret with us today. It is. And 49216216 is the number for your call to come in if you've got a question you'd like to put to him and Brian has rung in and Brian you've got a question yes hi David hi Brian how are you going well thanks um, my problem is I've got a, a nine year old now I've had dogs all my life so mm-hmm. I'm a bit of favour what's happened with them so I've got a nine year old border collie bitch mm-hmm. that for the last two weeks has shown no visible signs of being in season apart from the fact that every time a dog comes nearer she will stand and curl the tail as if she's going to accept the dog. Right. No other signs whatsoever. All right. So I'm just wondering what the problem is, and it's been going for two weeks now. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, a what the cause is. It's right. always show. You can always tell when she was in season. You know? So, and is normally, um, so normally a dog uh, will come into season, a female dog come into season about every six months. Yeah, but that's right. Yeah. But some some are actually every twelve months. Yeah, and now, I'll let them bite that too, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, so how regular was she before? Yeah, like six months. And yeah. you were, you would expect her to be on heat around now? No, not no. now. She usually doesn't come in around about October or some November. So it's about uh, four months since her last cycle, is it? Oh, it would be, yeah. Mm, okay. Well, there's uh, the interesting thing is that with the heat cycle, what happens is that um, dogs, it's quite interesting because of the way they have this pause, um, compared to, say, cats, for instance, and other species. But with dogs, they go into a pause cycle where basically there's very little oestrogen or progesterone being produced. And then, yeah. they, uh, then they come back in to the oestrus cycle. Now, what's happening there is that there's a follicle developing on the ovary, uh, multiple usually, and uh, the f- cells that line the follicular cyst start to produce oestrogen. Now, the reason this is important is that the oestrogen changes the reproductive tract um, produces the uh, signs that we see, often swelling around the back end, but they also produce some of the pheromones. The oestrogen drives the pheromones that then attract the other dogs and it changes her behaviour. So you can have a situation where there's enough oestrogen 
to probably have some of those effects but not necessarily um, produce a, a, a red or yellow discharge that we yeah, see with the heat cycle. That. But the, and you, she always did have, you could always tell yep. that she's, she's had no swelling or discharge at all, except that I say, if you'll have the dog near, they, they usually kennel a bit of bomb home, you'll let them out the yard. Um, yeah, so you know, that's... Walks up to her, she'll stand and just curl the tail straight over, you know, and she's, she's I, oh, I've been there to intervene, but the dog tiptoed around her and danced around like they usually do, and well, he made a half-hearted attempt to make with it, but that was, you know, he didn't, nothing happened. And what, what, yeah, what <laughs> well, did, uh, what did she do when they tried to mate with her? She did. Yeah. yeah, it makes me think that there is oestrogen there. So there's a very simple test that can be done to find out. I mean, you can get a blood test done, but oftentimes the simpler thing is to have what we call vaginal cytology. So right. you go into your vet and explain the situation. This is what we call a silent heat. Um, yeah, well, this is why I wonder if it was like a hormonal thing and we're yep. off after a period of time, you know. Yeah, it, well, it can, but uh, sometimes, particularly, say, in an older dog, which this is a nine-year-old, you might have um, incomplete development of the follicles, and so what tends to happen is rather than the follicle actually start to come to a peak, if you like, and they get to the point where they're going to ovulate, it, it just seems to simmer along, and that can actually happen for quite a period of time. Ah, right up. So yeah. it's, there, there's often, um, and in this case, we're starting getting deeper into the physiology of um, brain and, and reproductive hormones, but there may be deficiencies in what's called FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone. That comes from the hypothalamus in the brain. Uh, it's something that I would get checked out because otherwise there are risks of things like uh, uterine cancer, mammary uh, cancer. Up. yep. You know, you've got to get that checked out. So take her into the vet, explain the circumstance. They'll probably do uh, the vaginal cytology and plus or minus a blood test, and there are some injections that will help to resolve the situation. All right, Adela, thank you very much for that. No worries. Thank you, Brian. And we're moving to tea gardens now with Peter. Hi, Peter. How are you going? Yeah, good, Dr. Dave. Yourself? Not too bad. What can we do for you? Uh, just a quick question on um, using treated pine um, for housing chickens. For their housing, does that have any effect on them at all? Only if they peck at the pine, but I would imagine that um, with the the arrangement of their uh, beak and so on, they're not really going to ingest too much of it. So the treated pine usually has a uh, a, a layer, or it's infused with a, um, if I remember, an arsenic yeah. base to try and um, resist and repel um, pests in the timber. Um, mm -hmm. And the real problem comes is, I think, is when you're actually building something like that and you're cutting it and there's that sawdust, which makes the particles small enough that the chicken feeding off the ground might actually start to ingest. I've never seen a problem with it. I think that the uh, the level that would be needed, to, you know, to be toxic would uh, be impossible for the chicken to ingest. But the But the actual... You know, coop itself that you've built and it's there and it's made of. I don't. It's not going to be a problem. It won't be a problem. There's no fumes that can infect them or anything that comes off the timber. No, only in the building phase. I think is probably yeah. the concern. But if it's all built either offside or separate, and you know, let it sit there for a day, then I think you're going to be fine. Yeah, that was the idea. Just hose it down a few times after we actually finished. And yeah, yeah. Get rid of some of the sawdust off it. Yep. That's the okay, best approach. that answers my question. I'll continue now. Good on you. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Thanks Peter. for your call, Peter. And you're listening to Pet Chat right now. 49216216 will get your question through to us. And Mel has rung in from YE. Hi, Mel. How are you going? 
Good, thanks. How are you going? Not, not too bad. What can we do for you uh, today? Just a quick question. I have a 20-week-old Sun Pied Conya, mm-hmm. and he's free-flying. Like He's all around the house, but he's into absolutely everything, and I mean everything. Yep. Now, is it cruel to get their wings clipped? Well, a lot of people will clip their pet's wings or have them clipped for a variety of reasons. Um, So the thing about wing clipping, first of all, is that uh, it's probably... The concern is if if they're going to get outside. Yep. Okay, and if that's a risk, um, depending on doors and how the the house is set up, then that's probably your biggest concern. Um, You have to be very careful. Wing clipping, I think there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Now... A little bit controversial in that um, people have different opinions on this, but here's my take on it. After years of experience and uh, seeing these uh, birds that have had their wings clipped inappropriately and having injuries as a result, you need to have both wings clipped, okay, not just one. Okay. What happens is uh, if if you have one wing clipped, and there's a right way to clip the wing and so on, but if you have one done, what happens is it unbalances the bird and they spiral. Yep. And I've seen a number of birds that have had head injuries and wing injuries where they've actually gone to take off because it doesn't stop them flying. They they think they can fly. They'll just jump and start falling. Um, but what happens is they'll spiral and so they'll slam into the wall or things like that. And as I said, a number of birds I've seen with head and neck injuries, wing injuries and so on. So yep. but both wings have to be done. The second thing is that the wings are used in a variety of ways. Now, we might think, well, they flap their wings and they go up or they stop flapping and they go down, but it's more than that. They steer, they balance, they're able to land and perch and so on with the use of their wings. So clipping different parts of the wings will have different effects. Most of the lift of the wing comes from uh, what we call the secondary feathers. Okay, So if you get your bird and you stretch out their wing and you have a look right on the end, if you like where our fingers are, okay, because their, their wing is the same as our arm, but right on the end are what's called the primary flight feathers, and they're the actual long ones. Now, they provide steering ability as well, uh, a little bit like the um, ailerons on a plane that they can push up or down and it'll move the the plane sideways so uh, if you you need to leave them alone sometimes we'll take one or two of them off this is why it's a good idea to go to see a veterinarian who has experience with birds because the getting it right is very important now usually they'll teach you how to do it right okay so the wing cl- the feathers that we actually clip are what's called the secondary flight feathers and um, is it, it gets a little bit technical hard to do over the radio but uh, if you roll your bird over on their back and stretch out their wing, you'll see that there's these feathers along almost like where our forearm and our our um, upper arm is, and they're called the secondary flight feathers, but there's a little smaller row underneath, and they're called the culverts. And so what we do is we cut the secondary feathers back to the level of the culverts. Okay, and that'll take out enough of the bulk of the wing and uh, that they won't be able to generate lift. And okay, we, yeah. we, we do both sides. So what happens is, let's say your bird's up on a bench, it goes to fly, it can steer, and it can get just enough that it'll actually float down to a gentle stop, you know, hopefully about six feet in front of where it took off. Yep. Um, but uh, if you go back deeper with that, you can damage the feathers. Um, the other thing is that they actually look normal when the bird's sitting up perched because you've still got those primary flight feathers. Mm-hmm. So they don't look disfigured by the wing clip either. Okay. okay, so just be aware there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. It's a good idea, at least for the first time, is to make sure you go see a, a veterinarian with experience in birds um, because they can teach you how to do it properly. 
it's a safe procedure when it's done like that, and I think it's quite useful. But um, a lot of people like their birds flying around. Um, but if you think that's the safer way to go, then sure, it's a good idea to get it done. Well, is it crueler to keep them locked up in a cage? Uh, look, some people say that's a concern, and um, but you know we started the show talking about household hazards, so I think we do have to be careful with birds, and I think that they they need to have a cage they can retreat into. Yep. But if they're a bird, particularly like a conure, which is very interactive with people. He is. Yeah, I, I think that um, if you're comfortable with them being around the house and, you know, they leave little messages for you everywhere as well, um, then getting their wings clipped is probably a safe way to go. As I said, keep them out of the kitchen, though. Well, see, that's hard because I'm in a very small house and mm. one room's just going off into another and that is my concern when I'm cooking and stuff. Yep. And also, he's into everything. He eats wood, he's eating the cupboards, he's eating the doors. Yep. And I, the question I want to know, is it crueler to keep him in his cage and just let him out, you know, for a couple of hours a day or is it better to get his wings clipped and keep him out? Oh, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's one or the other. Um, I think, no, I think if you've got a cage, they can be in there for a lot of the day. You really need to get a lot of toys and play stuff in there for him. Yep. And, uh, that can be done with native bushes, but you can also find in good pet stores and vets, you'll find really good toys for parrots now. So I would definitely a visit to a veterinarian who's going to be able to set you up with the right things for their cage, wing clipping. They'll talk to you about a diet as well. You mentioned about the kitchen. I'd keep him locked up in the cage while you're cooking, and then once everything's turned off, certainly he might be able to come out as yeah. well. So, What a good question that was yeah, from Mel from Waii. And Danny joins us now from Macquarie Hills. Hi, Danny. Yeah, I've got a, a, a bit of a problem with some chooks. Right. They're isobrowns, you know, though they're, they're bought as you know, really good chooks, this sort of thing, and they've been terrific. Yep. But I've had a couple that's died on me. Mm-hmm. Got a couple that's now going the same way. They're very healthy one week, and then you look at them, and you've got one that's sort of isolated. He will sit over in the corner of the pen, and then a couple of days later, he came, sort of falls over a bit, and then probably a week to ten days later, he's basically dead. Okay. Now, have you had any of these looked into? Find out something. What's anything that's going on with them? No. 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 Okay. The biggest thing I think we need to look at would be. Um, related to things like worms and parasites in the gut um, because for our backyard chooks, they're in a small environment. Chooks are down on the ground all the time. They're, they're pecking around. They're going to pick up, uh, you know, if there is worm eggs, if there is coccidia and things like that, they're going to uh, transmit it fairly easily and you've had a pattern of this problem happening. So I think the easiest thing or the first thing to do is to get um, some poo samples from them, take them into your vet and say, this is the problem. Let's get it looked at because uh, you might find it's a very simple thing that, you know, you've got a, a worm burden in the in the chooks and we need to get them treated with a particular medication. There are some worms that aren't treated with our usual worming regime and, um, as I said earlier about coccidia, that's another parasite that can cause those signs. But the symptoms you've described are a vague or a non-specific illness of a sick chook, basically. They'll do exactly what you said. Uh, regardless of the cause. So I'd, I'd get a sample into the vet, get that checked out first, um, yep. and hopefully it's just a case of some medication for them. Okay. Yeah. So I had like um, about 15 chalks, and two of them died in the last two months, but I've got another two that are cropped sort of now. 
Yeah, well, certainly either um, take some samples in or even take one of the chooks in for a checkup because um, they can, you know, the vets can look and see whether they're anemic. If they're anemic and they find worms in the in the feces, then bang, you got yourself a diagnosis because that's a very common thing that we see, and they often get low protein level in the blood as well, and that makes that's what makes them so sick. So it sounds as though it's better to be sure than sorry, David. Uh, yeah, and and it can be a very simple thing to find out, and hopefully it is just that because it's easier to treat. Definitely. Mm. And Lynn joins us now from Kerry Bay. Hi, Lynn. Hello, how are you? Hi, good, thank you. What can we do for you today? Well, this is a fish problem. I have an indoor pond with about 18 carp and goldfish. Wow, yeah. Different types, and the biggest one's about 300 mil, and the smaller ones are around 100, so they're quite a nice size. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the comets has this huge growth on his head, sort of very close to one of his eyes. Yep. And I don't... You know, you feel like you want to pull it off, but of course you can't. Yeah. And interestingly, um, he had it, the same fish had it about six months ago, and it worried me, and they didn't tell me I could do anything with it. And it felt it must have fallen off, or the other fish ate it, and he was fine. Right. But I'm just wondering if that's going to happen, or is there anything I can do for it? Now, um, fish is probably not my area of expertise, but uh, I there's a couple of basic things here and um, I have had a bit, little bit of experience. So the first thing is that um, anytime we see uh, fish in an aquarium or a pond and so on is to look at water quality, number one. Secondly, this uh, uh, lump that you're talking about, there's a couple of things that can be... F- they, fish do get viral diseases, okay, and they can get papillomavirus, uh, which is like a wart, and that, that certainly sounds similar. There are... Um, uh, the risk, if you've got a little injury, you can get um, a bacterial infection which can develop into a granulomatous growth, and so you can get that. There's also, it's not quite the same on thinking there's a nutritional disorder um, that we sometimes see in fish that can cause swelling like that, but uh, I would be thinking either a viral or a, a, a bacterial infection that's caused it, and I guess the third or fourth thing that's a possibility, particularly in an older fish, for instance, would be a tumour, and that could be what's going on. So it may be that if it's a viral infection, then it's not necessarily anything that specifically can be done, but we don't want to either affect the other fish. So I would... um, now we've been saying about talking to various vets. Okay, with fish, you need to <laughs> you need to track down and find uh, a veterinarian who um, has seen a lot of fish and has done work with fish, because obviously there's a lot of um, very specialised, uh, I you know, tools and um, training required around this subject. So even if your local vet can't help you sp- directly, they should be able to point you in the right direction for someone who can because I would certainly get that checked out. It's Pet Chat on 2NUR. It's 9 to 1 and you're with Jane Klein and David Tabret today and Sam has joined us from Swansea. You've got a question for David that sounds as though it's a lot of something a lot of people would like to know about. Hi, Sam. Hi, Dave. How are you going, Marty? Good, good. What can we do for you? Um, I'd like to know another way of attracting, um, you know, Rosella, eastern rosellas and lorikeets and this sort of stuff into my yard. Yep. I realise, you know, native trees, bottle brush and grevilleas and that sort of stuff does. Mm-hmm. But um, we've got a few um, 
few of them nesting and this sort of stuff, and that, that's what I like to attract, to have them to nest in the yard. Mm. But my main concern is um, cats. Yep. Right, that's yep. the problem with um, birds and, and cats, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I think that you've raised a really good topic, and uh, a lot of people talk about this, and I, I have to tell you, I'm not sure I know the the right answer, um, but I'll tell you my experience is that um, we were in a place, living in a place which was somewhat on the western edge of um, Newcastle, Lake Macquarie, so we're out, yeah. uh, out near the mountains and plenty of um, large na- native trees and so on, and I was frustrated by the fact that all the birds would go and sit in next door's yard in their trees and not in ours. Um, now, we had a cat, so there's a good reason, and, okay. um, and yeah. our cat was inside and outside. But uh, what I discovered um, was that um, one of our grevillea trees blew down in a storm, and so we replanted another one. And the next year, we actually did get a lot of birds. Mm. And it turns out that certainly when we talk about our different native trees, but there are some particular differences and preferences that some of the birds have. So I think that the best advice for this is actually to talk to uh, the local nursery or the gardening people because they actually know which uh, which trees are the ones that are going to attract the native birds right. um, because what I discovered was when I went to look into this is that there's some for instance we were talking about grevilleas some of them actually birds aren't that fussed about that's um, right yeah and and, yeah. and it depends on the species of birds you know some of them well the miners the native miners I'll say would come in or the honey eaters but yeah, yeah. Um, but the lorikeets wouldn't yeah, but what what uh, the main thing I'm, I'm, I want to try to sort out is like they normally they normally birds that nest in hollow logs and this mm. sort of stuff, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So oh, that well, the lorikeets are yeah. Yeah. Now, if you put a hollow log on the ground, um, okay, they'll probably nest in it, but they're going to be attacked. Yeah, no, you can't have them down there. No, and you cannot go out into yeah along the side of the road these days and and pick up hollow logs and timber off the side of the road anymore, same as you can't go and pick up bush rock. Yeah. That's <laughs> rules and regulations now these, these days. Yeah. yeah. If, if a person was able to get out of some hollow logs off somebody else's property that you know, get them legally, and put them in the backyard up on metal staunchions, if I can use that word, staunchions or props or something like that, the cats can't climb up. Yeah, I, I don't know. You might... You might. I have seen what people have done is you can actually buy those sort of breeding logs. Well, they're called breeding boxes, but they look yeah. like logs. You can buy them as well, but um, I think they need to be up in a tree where, um, you know, either a, a tall gum or something like that. Something that, like that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we had, um, for many years, I did have a, I can't remember the, the species of tree, but we did have a gum in the backyard that had, a box there when we bought the place, and we used to get um, galahs actually used to nest in it every year. Oh yeah. So yeah. you know that that happens quite a bit. Um, so I think it's about making the environment attractive in terms of the trees. I think you need to make it uh, less harmful in terms of restricting cats into the yard. Um, that's another subject altogether. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, but the third no, thing is no, for the cat lovers. Don't get me wrong. I I, I like animals. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, but we won't go any further. Cats and native birds don't always mix cats, together. They don't mix, yeah. No. So, and I think probably having some breeding space, but, you know, 
the thing about breeding boxes is, uh, look, you can build it. They won't necessarily come to that um, maybe for a year or two. That's right. So yeah. it's gonna it's a long a long drawn out process. So you you do it this year, but the payoff may not be for a year or two. That's right. I believe there's another ruling. Um, a lot of people put out um, you know slices of bread or something like that with honey on it. Yeah, I would track birds, but apparently there's some regulation that that's illegal because of uh, they can carry some disease to the honey producing areas. Right. Well, I don't know about that regulation, but I do know that probably having feeding boxes and mixing up stuff and so on, there are, you know, falls and against it. But generally, it's uh, not the best thing to do um, because what will happen is you actually attract a group of birds into the area and they're mixing in a larger density than what they normally would. And there's yeah. risk of disease spreading amongst those birds. Yeah. Um, sure, you get lots of birds in there, but does that mean that they're actually going to be healthy? Um, I'm not sure. I think the, your basic approach is right. Get the right trees, keep the cats out, put the boxes up, and then just sit back and wait. And that sounds as though it's bringing us to the end of Pet Chat. And can we just repeat Already. that? Uh, oh, a couple of things. Um, so during today's show, we said about worming your chooks. Very good idea. Um, but I would always encourage people to get a fecal sample analysed so that they know exactly what's happening. And then after you worm them, get another one done. Make sure they, your treatment was effective. And we mentioned about toxic uh, food and stuff at the beginning, and I just briefly said avocado. So it is dangerous, probably more so to birds. People try to feed it, or horses actually, if they're grazing in an avocado grove. Mm. Mm. So make sure you keep your pets safe. There's plenty of hazards around the place. Thank you, Dr. David Tabret. No worries. Thanks, Jane. Back next uh, next Wednesday after the midday news yep. pet chat on 2NURFM.